This is the East TraumaCast. TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the Online Education Section and in collaboration with the East Career Development Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, and before we begin today's podcast, we'd like to note that this is a special collaborative offering through both the East TraumaCast and the East CareerCast programs. Because the topic and the interviewee held so much interest for both groups, we decided to collaborate and perform one podcast, which will be double posted at both the East TraumaCast and the East CareerCast websites. We're here with Dr. Gene Moore, who's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Trauma. He's also vice chair of research at the University of Colorado. Uh, I'm Matt Martin, the uh, moderator for this TraumaCast, uh, and I'm also here with uh, a co-moderator, uh, Dr. Matt Eckert. Uh, so thanks a lot for joining us, Dr. Moore. Uh, we really wanted to, to talk about the Journal of Trauma and some of the course that led you to the editor-in-chief, uh, but really a lot of advice, too, for the, the more junior or mid-level trauma surgeon uh, who's interested in academics and looking to get started uh, in publishing, or the more mid-level person who's interested in becoming more involved with the journal. Do you remember when you really first got started in academics and publishing? I was a uh, resident at the University of Vermont, where John Davis was chair. My initial aspiration was to be a cardiac surgeon, because I had an uncle who was a fairly famous academic cardiac surgeon, and it convinced me to pursue that, but as soon as I met Dr. Davis, I was instantly uh, changed. So actually, as a uh, second-year resident, I began to do the uh, abstract section of the journal Trauma. And uh, Dr. Davis put me on the board uh, several years later, and then I was uh, promoted to associate uh, editor under Dr. Pruitt. So uh, I was just lucky to know the right people and be there involved uh, from, the, from the start. Okay, and so you obviously mentioned a, a significant mentor who uh, really got you involved. And <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about the role of mentoring in terms of research. Uh, we hear a lot about mentoring in the clinical scenario, uh, probably a little bit less in research. Um, so just what are your thoughts on the role of mentoring in research and, and how that might differ from the clinical side and what makes a good mentor? Well, I think you're right. I think mentoring and research is just as important as is in clinical medicine, and we know how critical it is for that as well. I think the key uh, to uh, success in research, whether this is clinical uh, or basic, is to have uh, formal research laboratory meetings weekly in which you uh, have a uh, wide-ranging individual, depending on what your interests are, that includes senior people with the experience to uh, steer people in the right direction of what's relevant and how to do it. But the mentor is really the person uh, who uh, basically runs that uh, research conference. And a mentor has to be uh, conscientious, responsible, and perhaps uh, most importantly, uh, uh, generous. They need to give 
young investigators credit for their work, uh, promote them, encourage them. Uh, but it takes uh, discipline and time commitment, as you can imagine. Uh, I spent my day before the, this conference uh, going over talks with our residents. Uh, that's just what it's all about. That sounds familiar. We spent the hour before presentation <laughs> going over with one of our residents. But that's what the mentoring is. It's to give, you, you need to have, again, the innate interest that want to do it. But then you've got to be unselfish and be available for the trainees to help them do the best they can. So, so we have a trainee or a junior faculty who just came out of fellowship. Um, they don't have a lot of experience with publishing, but they, they want to get started on academics and publishing and maybe they have a couple of ideas for research projects. Um, just what pearls of advice would you give them in, in terms of designing and completing a project uh, that actually could lead to publication? Well, another one of my uh, great mentors uh, after Dr. Davis was uh, Dr. Ben Eisman at the uh, Denver General Hospital. And he hired me at the Denver General, and he dragged me in the office uh, like a great chief, and he said, okay, Moore, what do you want to do? And I said, uh, trauma. I said, okay, well, uh, you're now a trauma director. I want you to set up a program uh, like Trunky did in San Francisco, and I'll help you. And he said, uh, what kind of research do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. There's a lot of questions out there. And he said, well, here's my advice. I want you to take a three-by-five card with you in your little white jacket. And I want you to go, uh, every time you sit down M&Ms, write down the most common problem we have, and go on IC rounds and write down the most common problem we have. And then you come to me and talk about it, and we'll decide if that's relevant and proceed on. So I can remember this uh, as clear as yesterday. Uh, I sat down at the first half a dozen M&Ms, and it was clear that our major problem uh, in uh, 1976 was patients were dying of liver injury. And uh, then uh, he said, you're right, that's a common problem. Let's figure out why. And so we reviewed a number of trauma patients uh, and found out actually they were dying coagulopathy. And then we began looking through various factors that affect coagulopathy and found out that most of them are acidotic and cold. So that then we went to the research lab and started to do dog experiments and showed that isolated acidosis, hydrochloric acid infusion, for cooling dogs down to, to 32, uh, got a coagulopathy. And then we went back to the clinical arena, looked at the factors, and that's how we came up with you know the so-called bloody vicious uh, cycle in 1980. So that's really what he taught me. At the same time, uh, what I was convinced as when I started out as a trauma surgeon was I needed to spend time in the trenches. For 25 consecutive years as a trauma director, went to the emergency department for every trauma activation for 25 years. I learned a lot during those days. I sat back, uh, many were ho-hum injuries and nothing to them. Uh, and some came in, we were surprised, and others came in who died that we were frustrated on. But the fact is, to do research, you gotta get yourself in that environment. Okay, so so you get a couple ideas from that process. Yep. Um, what, what advice would you give them in terms of then designing a reasonable way to look at that that would actually produce meaningful results? Well, that's an important uh, point. That'd be my second uh, 
suggestion is before you embark on a research project, you have to read the literature. And that, frankly, I think is the uh, greatest oversight of young investigators. Uh, they don't uh, read what transpired 20 years ago. If you want to look at uh, ICU delirium, then go see what's written in the literature over the last 20 years. Just don't go on PubMed and put in delirium and look at the last six articles published. Many times we reinvent the wheel. It's what someone's done two or three decades ago that all of a sudden comes into view, but now we have tools. Coagulopathy being a perfect example. It's been, every war is brought up. Why can't we uh, stop this bleeding? And now we have tools to study. So it's generated a whole new uh, scheme of approaching uh, that problem from an investigational viewpoint. But it really gives you some insight into problems that you wouldn't ordinarily get if you just looked at the last several years of what's published. First, uh, Dr. Moore, let me just say thanks for the opportunity to sit down and ask a few questions of you. It's uh, for a young surgeon early in a career, it's, it's a pretty unique experience and an honor. Um, if I could shift back to the journal, obviously it changed a few years ago to add acute care surgery, which has become a big part of many trauma centers' practices as well. <clears throat> Is there a, um, a target distribution or breakdown now as we submit studies? Because there's so many other surgical journals that publish acute care surgery type research. Um, is the journal looking for a 50-50 type distribution of trauma, critical care, and, and acute care? Or is it just the best articles that come across your desk or are going to make the article, make the journal? Well, uh, I think to answer that honestly, it's uh, what our major affiliated uh, centers and uh, affiliate associations decide is important. Uh, as uh, we mentioned in our report, uh, the uh, rejection rate now for independent submissions uh, exceeds 80%. Conversely, uh, both East and West have now published more than 95% of their plenary papers. And AAST has traditionally uh, published over 90%. Mm -hmm. So we look to the uh, major affiliate associations to tell us uh, what's important. But again, back to answer your question, we let the uh, societies drive what we publish. So our, our best chances of being successful and kind of earlier in our academic career are getting into those meetings and that, that's going to increase our chance of getting into the journal probably better than, than other than good science, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. So this would be my third uh, point, if you don't mind, and, and proceeding on recommendations uh, for the young investigator. I didn't make any notes on this or think about this, but now that would be the third one, I would say, is uh, don't look at a uh, rejected abstract as a defeat. So take that as a... Uh, uh, as a benefit, take it back and work on your abstract. Make it better. Change the message. Add more patients or animals, whatever you need. But look at it as a positive thing and don't get uh, too anxious to get some publication and fire it off the journals and get it rejected a number of times. As I say to our uh, young uh, trauma surgeons, uh, there's nothing better for uh, your future career than standing before your peers and presenting a paper and defending your research. I can assure you, people are out there taking notes. They know who, they watch who's up in the podium. They listen to them. 
then they go and that's how they get that, how they recruit people. So you can write great things in articles, uh, in journals, but the fact is that the uh, the chiefs in, of divisions and chairs of departments so on don't read the journals and find out who is doing the work. They go to meetings and sit there and watch who's up on the podium. So don't underestimate the value of being up there in front of your peers presenting your work. Okay, uh, I, I want to switch to what we'll call Journal of Trauma 101. Uh, so can you just, just walk us through the process? I've hit submit on the Journal of Trauma website. Um, now what happens to that manuscript? And who does it go to and how does it get through the review process? Well, first when you uh, strike the uh, submit, then our uh, assistant editorial manager, Joe Fields, reviews it to ensure that it has met the various criteria. And you know right away because she writes back and says, well, it's not submissible because of X, Y, Z. Uh, once it goes through that process, uh, then the uh, manuscript comes to me, and then I look at the topic and I determine who to uh, send the article to review. So my practice is to try to pick uh, two good reviewers. Uh, some journals will pick four or five. But I'd rather hone down and get quality two people who I know are interested in that area, have written before in that area, and will give me some good advice. If it comes back uh, with uh, diametric views, and I can assure you that's more common than you would imagine. <laughs> I'll get guys that say, you know, or girls that say, you know, this is phenomenal. I got to publish this right away, and then I'll flip it over, and there's reject, fatal flaws. And that's the toughest thing for an editor. It drives me absolutely crazy. I love to see concurrence. I don't really care how they judge it, but I like to see two people agree. It's either phenomenal or it's salvageable, or you know, there's no way. Uh, so that's frustrating for me. And when we reach uh, that impasse, then I send out to a third. And then if that comes back that, well, I agree with A and I don't know about B, but, you know, I don't know. And they start waffling, then I send it out to one of my associate editors and say, what do you think? That's how we do it. What would you say are the common fatal flaws that you see in the manuscripts that where you get a concurrence, which is reject, reject? Well, I think the most common uh, reason is uh, relevance. Uh, you go, well, well, so what? I mean, clear the cease point. Well, <laughs> how many articles can you read on that? Uh, and so it's, well, what does this bring to the knowledge base right now that's going to change what we're going to do? And the second most common uh, really are fatal flaws in design. Uh, everybody wants to jump to these big databases, you know, to farm them for results. The fact is, uh, as you know, these databases aren't designed to ask that question. So when you look at the results and say, wait a second, they didn't adjust for this uh, confounder. How can they possibly conclude that? Uh, that is a uh, fatal flaw too. And often a reviewer will say, you know, I think this may be okay, but uh, I'm concerned about these statistics. So what I would encourage uh, the uh, aspiring author was that when they get into complex statistics, to ask a local expert in their institution what they think. 
And it's, it's becoming a very complex field, as we all know. Every day there's a new technique. And every day someone says, that technique doesn't work, there's a better one. I can't keep up with it, certainly. <laughs> back to the young author who sends in a manuscript and gets back the, the revisions from the first reviewers. Um, one reviewer seems to, as you mentioned already, one reviewer seems to, you know, accept with minor revisions, which seem very legitimate, and sometimes you scratch your head and wonder if the second reviewer actually read the article. How do you adjust, or what are your recommendations for the, do you completely change the spirit of the what you're getting across just to appease that second reviewer? Well, that brings up uh, several important things. Uh, first of all, uh, don't forget, uh, the reviewer holds four of the aces, not three of them, four. <laughs> if you're uncivil to that reviewer, you're dead in the water. That shotgun's loaded. They're waiting to pull the trigger. So don't get uh, ungrateful to the reviewer. Secondly, remember, uh, as I said, I, I see these disparate reviews, uh, and I'm curious who is reading and thinking about the article. And I must say, I have to watch myself in that sense. Uh, I never have a bolt or personality, of course, but uh, <laughs> if I've had a bad case and I'm on call and I come back 9 o'clock and start reviewing articles, I notice that I bag a few more than I ordinarily do. So you got to understand that we're human beings, and sometimes what we reflect on paper may be a you know, manifestation of the environment we're in. But what I would suggest is uh, to conscientiously address every single point. Now one of the, but you bring up a good point though, one of the flaws, and I'm tempted to change it, I've talked about the last two years with our editorial office, is that we go through uh, the schematic uh, approach to review an article, and a lot of the comments are uh, laudatory. Some will say, oh, great review of literature, a wonderful hypothesis. And then the methods, they'll go, well, they probably should have adjusted for this, and the conclusions are a little soft because this. And then they'll write to me as the editor, categorical reject, unsalvageable. Now, if you're the author, you start reading, oh, look, I did a great job of this, a great job of this. You sort of look over the key points. And so uh, I'd be careful to uh, address every single point. Now, if a point is missed, and occasionally it is, uh, you should point that out. If, if the reviewer happens to have looked at the wrong table or uh, wrong information, then, you know, as to point uh, three, uh, we appreciate the uh, suggestion. Uh, however, uh, perhaps we didn't make it clear enough, but in table three, you see that the ISS uh, mean was 17 in this group compared to a mean of 18 in the other group. And then you allay that concern. But you don't want to write in there, which some people have. Uh, I don't know what that reviewer is smoking when they're reviewing this thing. And clearly it's in table three. A uh, quick note on plagiarism and image manipulation. Uh, that's become a hot topic and, and rejections in journals. And, and how is the Journal of Trauma uh, screening for that? And, and have you seen that as much of a problem? Well, unfortunately, it's becoming more of a problem. We have uh, commercial software to address that, and our uh, managing editor, uh, Jennifer Krebs, uh, reviews that very critically. The greatest concern we have uh, is so-called uh, data augmentation or data fragmentation. 
and that's become rampant and we're concerned about it. So I see someone review, you know, 500 cases of such, and then they come up with uh, a conclusion. Then three months later, they say, oh, the title is, and you look at it, and they say, well, this is a 500 patients, and that's picked up in our computer analysis. So we look back, and sure enough, identical patients, the 500 patients from 2010 to 2014, you look down at this exact same uh, patient group. Well, why didn't you report this the first time? And a lot of it is, uh, is disturbingly uh, premeditated. They clearly knew the data and didn't publish it with the first. And many times, uh, if we pick this up uh, and they've submitted the journal of trauma, we'll tell them that uh, they have a choice. They got one manuscript out of this. And we think it'll be a stronger manuscript if they combine their data and come up with conclusions. If not, we'll take one of the two and they can publish it elsewhere, but we don't believe that is uh, the pathway we would recommend. Okay, and uh, has the Journal of Trauma had any issues in terms of having to retract a manuscript or, uh, you know, identify major plagiarism or even falsification of data that some of the other journals have had issues with? Well, we haven't seen falsification of data that we know of. Uh, we've spared uh, a number of individuals' embarrassment by uh, pointing out that their work is duplicate. Yeah, we're going to reject it, but I'd admonish you to consider the ramifications of having this publicized, because the last thing you want to do is be cited in the journal that this is duplicate work somewhere else. And generally, if I see something that's that's clearly duplicative, uh, then I just simply get in the phone and call a senior investigator and inform them that. Let's uh, shift topic a little bit to, we, we talked about the peer reviewer. Um, so... I'm now a junior guy, maybe I've published a little bit, uh, and I'm interested in working with the journal more and becoming a peer reviewer. And I think that that process has been a bit of a mystery. Um, how do I become a Journal of Trauma peer reviewer? And, and what are the qualifications you look for for a peer reviewer? Well, that's a uh, very tough job we have to deal with in the editorial office as well. Over time, as an editor anyway, uh, you, beget to, you begin to... Uh, uh, recognize your uh, peer review uh, board and rely on those that uh, do a conscientious job. And so you like to retain those people. And on their side, when individuals aren't doing quality work, then we suggest that they uh, find another board to be on. Unfortunately, for a young person, that's pretty rare with general trauma. Most of the people have uh, or do a good job, and uh, they're kept on. So it's tough for us to decide, you know, where we cut those borders as the uh, board. And uh, we just invited Matt to join us, uh, and that was based on the fact that uh, he did a conscientious job. He got his work in on time. Uh, he did a great job in uh, scientific review. And he didn't badger me in an email every other day saying, hey, why aren't I on the board? Uh, and sometimes I make oversights. But I can assure you that I get emails once a week by someone who says, why aren't I on the board? So what I try to do is, you know, keep it a little bit fluid. Uh, but uh, frankly, what we judge it on is uh, 
their age index and what they published in drama. And then we start to look at who goes to the various meetings that uh, ensures their genuine participation in that discipline. Okay, so, and that's for joining the editorial board, but say Dr. Ecker here, you know, he's published a couple papers in Journal of Trauma, and, but he just wants to start becoming a peer reviewer. How does he become a peer reviewer? I mean, I remember I just got invited kind of out of the blue by someone who knew me, and I didn't know the process when I got invited. How does someone become start doing peer reviews for the journal? Well, that's a good question, and I think the best thing is simply to uh, contact me directly and say I would be I would be interested in doing peer review for you, okay. and we put you in a list and send papers out. All right. See how you do. Well, and then what are the key factors you look for in uh, in how you do as a peer reviewer? Well, uh, sadly enough, probably the most important factor is the turnaround time. <laughs> Uh, you can say all you want, but nothing frustrates you more than to keep going to your list every day and finding that your third reviewer is 22 days out. Now, if someone on the board doesn't send it in in 14 days, I guarantee you they make that mistake one time. <laughs> they simply don't go on because I've got a waiting list of others that can do a great job. But I think, too, is the quality, obviously. Uh, and I'd take time thinking about it. Uh, the way I used to always do reviews is, uh, this is probably old-fashioned, but I used to always write them on paper. And then I'd go back the next day and look over and say, am I saying the right thing? Is this uh, appropriate? And then I'd fire it off. I think sometimes you get drawn up a little bit emotionally and fire off things that may be not appropriate. And sometimes we may miss uh, some key points. So as you go through your review uh, and you find some inconsistencies, you go, oh, yeah, I didn't look at table three here. Uh, this doesn't make sense based on what I said earlier. You go back and review it again and make sure that it makes sense. That is uh, really one of the uh, huge uh, benefits of being a reviewer. We can't pay you, but what you get out of subliminally is phenomenal. You just pick up instincts, you watch, you read how people communicate, and suddenly you take on the good habits and avoid the bad habits. And I have reviewed, of course, for a number of journals in the past, and when I'd see the email come along, uh, I'd see shock. Yeah, I can't wait to review this. I'm going to learn something. And then I see others I won't mention. I'm going, oh, my God, more dribble. Oh, I can't stand that. And I politely say to the editor, is it time for me to move on? <laughs> so, but, you know, you ought to be having fun doing these reviews. And for junior people in particular, I think you learn a hell of a lot. Uh, not necessarily ideas about what you're going to do with research, but the habits of how to convey information and the mistakes and how you conduct your research. And suddenly it becomes second nature to you. Okay, and uh, switching now from peer review, and we already talked a little bit about it, of joining the editorial board. So you've been a peer reviewer for four or five years, uh, you know, doing good peer reviews. Um, how does one join the editorial board, or what are the criteria you use to elevate someone to the editorial board? I know you mentioned the H factor, and, and probably many people don't even know what that is, so maybe you could briefly comment on what that is, and then what other criteria do you look for? Well, the H index is uh, basically your impact factor. I mean, how much you have written has been published. We now use an H-index uh, cutoff of uh, 25. We started off at 15, and then went to 20, and now we're about 25. 
Because that sort of uh, indicates that you've uh, contributed enough and people recognize your work enough uh, that they decide. Uh, the second element is uh, trauma or acute care surgery-related uh, publications. We make changes in the editorial board uh, in the calendar year. So usually in September, Jennifer and I get down. I probably have a list right now of uh, close to 20 people that I think would be legitimate candidates, uh, should be considered, and uh, and go through that review. And you made the cut last year. Uh, I'm not sure how you got in that list, but something, uh, you impressed me somehow. Uh, and you get in that list, and then I keep going through and moving people up, and I have people rank according to what I think qualifies uh, to be a reviewer. I'd love to... Uh, Double the board, but I think if you get it too large, then it sort of loses its meaning of being on the board. I, I do have a, a question that you mentioned earlier about sort of shifting the, the shift toward electronic media, social media, etc. And you see a lot of these now, listservs, uh, discussion threads like trauma.org's Karen Brogy's line. And, but do you see it moving toward that type of more of instant daily type of uh, discussions of the literature and what's out there as opposed to the monthly publication? Well, first of all, uh, we placed the, the accepted manuscript on PubMed as soon uh, as it's accepted. First of all, your work's out there uh, as soon as it's accepted. Secondly, uh, Jennifer's all over this and I don't have a clue. But she comes into my office and puts the sheet down. Oh, look, uh, this article number three got 17,000 tweets yesterday. <laughs> oh, well, isn't that exciting? <laughs> I go on some of these blogs, you know, and they're erratic. Uh, there's some people that we're talking about. There's other people making comments about peer review uh, articles, and I'm going, what are they talking about? They missed the point totally. But a lot of these journals in uh, UK in particular, that's where uh, the real fiber for this comes from is uh, suggesting that, you know, articles shouldn't undergo peer review. We just put them all out there and then people comment and you decide what's appropriate. Well, for the uh, person who's really not experienced in that area, to look at 25 comments uh, from all over the country, you have no idea the credibility of these individuals. And they make these, uh, you know, inappropriate uh, assessments of the material and it's misleading. Uh, again, on all these trauma blobs, I, I, they come up on my computer, I'm on board, I go on to them, and I'm going, I can't believe this person said this. What are they talking about? And I have no clue what the fundamental message of this research project is. As I said, the Ultramex, which is the, takes into consideration all the Internet communication, uh, ranks us number three in the country in terms of surgical journals, which is pretty remarkable. So we're getting out there in that area. Anything uh, new or exciting coming up uh, with the journal that we can look forward to over the next, the near future? Just more social media. <laughs> that seems to be the theme. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, we're trying to diversify a little bit uh, with the types of articles to make it sort of interesting when you look at the journal. Uh, and so we're looking into new uh, journal types. Uh, you know, we've incorporated a number of, uh, of uh, new forms over the tenure that we've been there. Uh, you know, they, they reviews, the current opinions, the uh, ACS uh, challenges where we do basically case uh, reports and 
we're going to insinuate this year uh, probably some kind of a journal club type thing into the uh, journal. But we just want to diversify a little more. Uh, we certainly uh, welcome letters to the editor and uh, opinion pieces for the journal. Uh, I rarely reject a letter to the editor uh, unless they're just trying to promote their article that wasn't referred to. But if they do really critique what that paper has uh, tried to do, uh, it's rare we turn one down, those down. So I'd encourage uh, younger individuals uh, to uh, express their views to that avenue. Look at an article, and if you have some uh, serious thoughts about what the problems are, let us know. Now, one individual about a month ago uh, wrote and said, well, this article has how many flaws in it. I don't know how you took this. Clearly, your board doesn't understand the subject. Well, that's not going to get on. <laughs> but if someone says, you know, I look at table two, I would interpret uh, column B a little differently. And I look at it this way. Well, that's what we want to hear. Have a, a good uh, open discussion about how to interpret data. So you've, you've had a relatively unique career path, not a lot of people have, that's uh, culminated in being an editor-in-chief of a major journal. Um, was, this, was this something that you've had relatively planned or a goal for a, a long period, or is this something that uh, you know, happened by a, a series of fortunate accidents? Yeah, I'd say the latter describes it. Uh, I didn't start out uh, with intent to be... Uh, uh, journal editor, uh, and as time went on, I had to decide my career, like everyone else, of uh, where you want to focus your energies. We can't do everything. Uh, like all of us, we like to immerse ourselves in uh, the work we do every day. Uh, I couldn't wait to read the journal trauma every month, and so I did what I felt was uh, most interesting to me. And, you know, being uh, selected as the editor of various journals, is a lot of it is just the timing. You know, you, the position opens up and you happen to be somebody who's one of those. There are many qualified. So what kind of time commitment are we talking about huh. with uh, as an editor-in-chief job and, and also how that impacts your other functions as a clinical surgeon and researcher? Well, that's a uh, good uh, point as well. I never uh, envisioned the amount of time I'd spend on the uh, journal. It, uh, I'm paid as a 40% uh, FTE, and I can assure you that I spend 50% of my time. Uh, it's a constant, it's something I do daily, no matter where I am in the world. I open the computer and assign reviewers, review papers, and adjudicate them. It's a constant job. And I can assure you that uh, you don't make friends being editor. <laughs> uh, I've had a number of individuals uh, question my judgment, which is their right. Uh, and uh, I try to be as fair as I can. You can't make everybody happy, though. So, so how do you do that job and maintain an active clinical and research practice? Well, that's a good question, and you probably should ask my wife <laughs> <laughs> As I supposedly uh, have reached retirement age, uh, on the one sense, uh, I love research, and I'd never give up basic research. It, to me, it's just waking up every day with a new, exciting pathway to go down, uh, and the discoveries are, uh, are very enjoyable because often they're unanticipated. 
On the other, uh, I feel that I need to be continue to be clinically active to be relevant for the journal. So I still take call uh, one day a week at the old Denver General, 24 hours. Uh, and still, I think, get enough experience to sort of understand the game. And most importantly, I'm still an active trauma surgeon takes call once a week. That's one of the questions. That's Perfect. the most important part. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Moore. We've certainly learned quite a bit about the inner workings of the journal and, and a little bit about uh, the career leading to editor-in-chief. Uh, and uh, on behalf of uh, East and the TraumaCast, and the CareerCast program. Uh, we certainly appreciate you sitting down with us. My privilege. Thank you very much. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. Mm -hmm.